You're listening to TIP. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. They think that there's more risk in being an entrepreneur, but where the risk really lies is in not building something for yourself. On today's show, I talk with Tony Robinson about the strategies he uses now and has used in the past, his transition to Airbnb and short-term rentals, how he used his stock portfolio as line of credit to buy real estate, the struggles and achievements he experiences in his business, and a bunch more. Tony Robinson is well known in the world of real estate investing as the host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Rookie Podcast. After starting his investment career by purchasing single family homes as long term rentals, he found the tremendous opportunity that short term rentals provide, and he has since shifted his focus 100% to growing that part of his business, Alpha Geek Capital. I had listened to Tony's podcast a bit with him as the host. Then recently, he and I joined a mastermind together. So now I'm lucky enough to get to meet with Tony every week and talk all about business and real estate. And he's just an awesome guy doing some awesome things in the real estate world. Be sure to give him a follow on Instagram. His username is Tony J. Robinson. And you can also follow me at the Robert Leonard. I really enjoyed this episode with Tony, and I think you guys will too. So without further delay, let's get into this week's episode. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Tony Robinson. Tony, welcome to the show. Robert, thanks for having me on, brother. Super excited to chat with you, man. We know each other a bit from our mastermind, social media, a couple other ways. And we'll talk about the mastermind a little bit later. But for those who don't know you yet, tell us a bit about your background. Yeah. So again, my name is Tony J. Robinson. First and foremost, I'm a family man, married to my wife. Uh, we've been dating since we were seniors in high school. So Rishi's like my actual best friend in real life. I have a 13-year-old son. Like most teenagers, he drives us absolutely crazy a lot of the times, but he's a wonderful kid. I'm blessed to be his dad. Based here in Southern California, about 45 minutes outside of Los Angeles. And I'm also the co-host of the Real Estate Ricky podcast through the Bigger Pockets Network. And I think with that position, a lot of people assume that I'm this guru, this expert that knows everything there is to know about real estate investing, but I'm relatively new myself, man. I didn't, I didn't get my first deal until October of 2019. Uh, we've scaled a bit since then, but yeah, I'm, I'm still new. I'm still learning myself. So excited to share what I can with the listeners today. I think people can tell just from that first minute or two that you're clearly a very humble guy, but You've done some awesome things in real estate, and I think it makes you really relatable. You know, you started back in 2019. It's only a year and a half, two years, coming up on two and a half years ago. So, people that are listening to it today, it's relatable, and it also tells them where they might be able to be in a year and a half or two years. And so, I think that's great. Talk to us about your transition into real estate full time. Why did you make the transition, and what has it been like for you? Yeah, man. So, I'll be honest, Robert. It was not by choice. I worked for like a big company. I got let go in December of 2020, two days before Christmas, so December 23rd, 2020. And we had spent the last year kind of building up our real estate portfolio. 
And, you know, luckily I, I earned a pretty decent, you know, six figure wage at my W2 job. My wife and I did a good job of saving. So we had a, a pretty decent nest egg. And, you know, after I, I lost my job, we had this decision of, is this like a sign from the universe that, you know, we should jump in full time or, you know, do we go back and try and find something else? And I had always kind of had in the back of my mind that eventually I wanted to leave my W2 job, but I had about two more years left on that plan. So it just kind of got accelerated. So my wife and I said, hey, let's give it a year. Let's let 2021 be the year that we focus and just go kind of full force on the real estate business and see where we land at the end of the year. And if we need to go back, we'll go back and you know we'll, we'll get some W2s. And if not, then this is our life for the rest of our life and we're working for ourselves. So it wasn't by choice, but I think we had enough confidence to bet on ourselves that we had kind of laid the right foundation and hey, man, we're, we're just rolling with it. You mentioned we, and I know you're referencing your wife there, but is she a W-2 as well now or is she full-time in real estate too? We're both full-time in the real estate business. So she had actually left her W-2 job maybe about 11 months before me. Once we started acquiring the short-term rentals, she was kind of the person that we put in charge. And then you know she manages everything else in our life, you know, just kind of keeping the house running, doing all those things. But yeah, she's full-time in real estate now as well. So we're nearing the end of 2021. We're nine months or so in. You're coming up on that year mark. Where are you at? What does it look like? Are you looking? Are you getting prepared to start looking for another W two? Are you continuing down the path of just real estate? What's that look like for you? Man, the goal is that on December 31st of this year that I delete my resume, completely swipe my LinkedIn profile, and I feel like run that path, man. It's scary making that transition, right? Because you go from climbing the corporate ladder and getting these promotions and these raises. And there's just very steady paycheck coming in every two weeks. And then I got quarterly bonuses. Like There was just a very steady flow of money. right? But when you transition into working for yourself, it's irregular. right? Like You get paid here, you get paid there, you get, and you've got to kind of just live life with a different perspective. So it was scary. But I think for me, Robert, the biggest thing is that I understand how much risk there is in continuing to be a W-2 employee. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. They think that there's more risk in being an entrepreneur, but where the risk really lies is in not building something for yourself. Why is that? Yeah. Let me break that down. Right. So my dad, my father, right? he worked for this trucking company for most of my like young life. Right. From the time that I was born, he was like in the trucking industry. So he started this company when he was like 20, right? Early 20s. Worked his way up from being like a dock worker to being the general manager of this company. He had a nice cushy job. He had bought not one, but two houses. Him and my mom had two houses at the time. They were renting one out. They had a primary residence. And in his mid-30s, right? So he's like 14, 15 years in the job at this point. He gets a call that the company's going bankrupt. Like, hey, you don't have a job Friday. No warning. No, hey, prepare yourself. He woke up one day and he didn't have a job, right? By no fault of his own. And he didn't have like another hustle. He didn't have another business to fall back on. So it was very difficult for my parents when that happened to them, right? We end up losing the house, like just all kinds of things happened. Then they end up breaking up, divorcing. So it was this very kind of pivotal moment in my dad's life. And he just always kind of communicated to me growing up about the importance of building something for yourself. So I feel super, I don't know, fortunate to have learned from his lessons of that when I Almost went through the exact same experience as my dad, right? I'm in my mid 30s, spent all this time climbing the corporate ladder, and I unexpectedly lose my job. But luckily, I had something else to fall back on. And that's the part that people don't understand is that when you work for someone else, they might love you, 
right? You might be the best employee, but at the end of the day, they're always going to have to make the decision that's best for the business. And if that means the decision that's best for the business is that Robert loses his job or that Tony loses his job, they're going to do that, right? They're not going to say, oh, you know, we really like Robert or we really like Tony. They're good guys. You know, it's not going to happen that way, right? They're going to do what's best for the business. So if you're not building something for yourself, then you're putting yourself at risk. You're putting your family at risk. I was going to say, you're the perfect example of that, right? What if you didn't have that real estate to fall back on when you had gotten you know, let go from your job? I mean, you probably could have found another W-2 job. You're relatively young, well-educated, you're a smart guy, hard worker. I'm sure you would have been able to find another job. But the point is, you didn't have to because you had your real estate on the side. And I think you're right. A lot of people have this false sense of security from a W-2. But what I always think about is too, is that's just one source of income. Sure, there's some sense of security from a W-2, but when you're an entrepreneur, you oftentimes have more than one stream of income. So even if you lose one of them, you still have all the others. Maybe you make a little less money. Maybe you need to tighten your belt a little bit, not spend as much money, but at least you still have all these other streams. In real estate, if you have a bunch of big portfolio with a bunch of properties, if one or two properties goes down, you still you get fired, say, from those properties. You still have the other three, four, five to support you. And it's not that way with a W-2. You're either in or you're out. Like Robert, I'll never forget like my first job out of college. I was working for this big corporation, right? They're like a Fortune 500, Fortune 100 company, right? And after my first year, the time for my raise comes up. And I've been crushing it, man. Like I was killing it, staying late, going into work early, just like doing all the stuff you're supposed to do when you get out of college and it's your first job and you're trying to crush it. And I got a 2% raise. 2%. And I'll never forget, like I was sitting there in the office with my boss and she, you know, sweet lady, loved her to death. And she was super excited to give me this raise. She was like, Tony, you know, you did such a great job this year. You know, we really wanted to reward you. They hand me my promotion or my raise letter, and it was 2%. And, you know, of course, you know, I smile, I say, thank you. You know, I'm appreciative. But as I was walking away, I was like, man, I'm worth way more than 2%. And what I love about being an entrepreneur and working for yourself and being in control is that I get to decide what I'm worth. I get to decide how much money I make on a monthly, weekly, annual basis, right? It's up to me to go out there and bust my ass, do the work that's necessary. And as long as I'm providing value to the marketplace, I know that I'm going to be compensated in a way that's equal to the value that I'm providing, not based on what some corporation feels that I should be getting, but on the value that I know that I provide. That's why I love the journey of being an entrepreneur, man. And a lot of times there's a bracket there. Like Even if you're a top performer, some companies say, no matter how good you are, we can't give more than 5%. Like That is literally the cap. It doesn't matter how good you are. You could be the best employee in the entire company, better than the CEO. It doesn't matter. You're getting 5%. That's the best we can do. It doesn't really work that way in real estate, right? Like if Let's just say... I mean, it works the same way in any entrepreneurial journey, but we're talking about real estate here. Let's just say you have a rental unit that's $1,000 a month in rent, and you're still profitable there. You bought it that way. But then in a year, you can raise that to say twelve fifty. Now you just got a 25% raise. You just gave yourself a 25% raise and you're, it drops right to the bottom line because your expenses haven't increased and nobody else is controlling that for you. You know, There's market conditions there that can obviously play a role, but the point is you're in control. And when you work at a W-2, you have no control. You have a false sense of security, but you have no actual control. Whereas an entrepreneur, you have all the control. Mm-hmm. You've got to play it smart, like you said, and, and there's some market forces at play. But at the end of the day, it's up to me. It's up to you what your value is and how much money you actually make. When you first started in real estate, you had the W-2 job. So you weren't necessarily creating your portfolio in a way that needed to sustain your lifestyle. It was more this side hustle, I guess you could say, or another passive income stream. So what was your strategy then? And what has it evolved into today? Yeah. So 
When I first started investing, one of the books that I read early on was Joe Fairless, the guy from the Best Ever Real Estate uh, Podcast and all the things that he does. He had a book on apartment syndication. And I read that book and I knew that I eventually wanted my real estate investments to replace my W-2 income. And I felt fairly confident that buying one-off single-family houses would be the slowest way to get there. So I knew that I wanted to venture off into an asset class that could produce like bigger income, right? My initial thought was, okay, I want to get into apartment syndication, right? Like I want to go out and buy these 100 unit apartment complexes and you know do all these really cool things. But Joe Fairless in his book, the first thing he said is that you need a, a track record if people are going to hand you their money, right? Like they need to see that you've done this once or twice. And Joe said that his track record before his first apartment syndication was buying and renovating single family houses. I had already read the Burr book by David Green, you know, buy, rent, rehab, refinance, repeat. I'd already read, read uh, long distance real estate investing, like all the bigger pockets books I had consumed already. So I said, okay, cool. Let me start with a few single family houses and then I'll graduate into you know, the apartment syndication space. So that's what I did, man. Went out to Louisiana, which was, I don't know how many thousands of miles away from Southern California. We bought four properties out there. Two of them were long-term rentals. The other two, they were rehabs that we were planning to turn to long-term rentals, but we ended up selling them beforehand. But that's how I got started, man. I bought a couple long-distance investments out of state, got some tenants in there, and, and was kind of off to the races from there. Why'd you choose Louisiana? Yeah. So my parents, my mom and my stepdad, they had actually retired there. They were living in Southern California. Mom retired, wanted to make, make the retirement money stretch a little bit longer. And they moved to Louisiana. My stepdad had some family out there, Shreveport, Louisiana, if anyone's wondering. And when they moved out there, they bought a house that had been sitting vacant for like three years. They paid $30,000 for the house. They spent another, I think, like $40,000 on the rehab. Right? It was a small place, it's like a two bedroom, one bath, you know, just enough space for the two of them. And it ended up appraising for like $110,000 or something like that. Right? It appraised for far more than what they put into it. And the best part was that there was a local bank that funded 100% of the purchase price and 100% of the rehab. So like my parents had this house, built this equity, and they literally spent $0 out of pocket. So after they did this, you know, I'm just talking to them like, hey, like, tell me more about this. And they gave me all the details. So I ended up calling the bank. I said, hey, you know, my parents just got a house with you guys. Like, can I do this too? You know, like if I buy an investment property, will this work? And they're like, yeah, sure. You know, they, they kind of gave me the guidelines. You, know, you got to have this certain level of cushion or margin in between what you pay for it and, and what it'll be worth afterwards. But if you find the right deal, we'll fund it. So I did that twice with that bank. Um, and that's how I got started out there. Here at TIP, we're mainly focused on stock investing. We do have a little bit of real estate, obviously, with this real estate show that we're talking on today, but we're predominantly focused on stock investing. So when I heard that you used a line of credit against your stock portfolio, I thought that was really interesting. And I thought that the audience would really like it and, and could learn a lot from it. So Talk to us a bit about what you did with this stock portfolio line of credit, how it all works, how you even find that bank. Let's talk through that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So the company that I was working for, like a big part of our compensation was through restricted stock units, right? So we got stock, company stock is part of being an employee, right? And it was all managed through E-Trade, right? So E-Trade.com, I'd have to log in there, I'd see all my stocks that got vested. And I can't remember how I came across it. You know, Just like monkeying around on the website, I came across this like line of credit tab and I said, oh, what is this? And what it allows you to do is to take stock that you own, and they'll use that as leverage to give you, or as collateral to give you a line of credit. 
So, you know, I think they'll only go up to like 10 or 15%, maybe even 20%, 25, somewhere around there of what you actually have. But the benefit is that it's a really, really, really low interest rate in comparison to like a typical line of credit. Like I think when I got it, it was like 2.875 or something stupid like that. It doesn't show up on your credit report. So as you're trying to get other loans and things like that, it's not going to work against you. And it's super, super easy. Like there's no credit check, you know, like they're using your stocks as a collateral. So I think I called it like a Monday morning to say, hey, can I get this line of credit? And I was approved like Monday afternoon, right? Like, like it was that simple. And we use those proceeds to go out and pay cash for some of their investment properties we bought in Louisiana as well. You're right. You typically can't get a huge percentage of your portfolio, but there are some where you can get 30, 40, 50%. And I mean, if you have a decent sized portfolio, that could be awesome. And like you said, they're just using the collateral from the assets, the stocks. And so super easy. And I, I think that's a great way to get into a property for somebody, especially somebody listening to the show. Because a lot of people listening to the show probably have more stock investments than they do real estate yet because of how much TIP has focused on stocks in the past. Do you still utilize that strategy at all? Or do you not? I mean, I'm guessing you probably don't have those RSUs anymore. But if you have a stock portfolio, do you still use that at all? I haven't used it since we've been able to find capital in other places. So I'm just kind of letting that one ride and, and growing and doing its thing. How did you pay that loan back? So we actually ended up selling the properties that we bought. So, you know, we bought them. The goal was initially to do a burr with them, but we ended up, you know, like just kind of selling them for what we paid for them. So once I got that money back, I just paid off the line of credit. So would you be willing to do that same strategy? And let's just say the loan monthly payment was, I'm going to use random round numbers here for easy conversation. Let's say the loan on that was $100 a month. If you knew you were going to cash flow $300 a month on a property, would you be willing to use that loan to buy that property to net the difference? So I guess a couple of things right before I answer that. First is that the benefit of using that line of credit, at least through E-Trade, is that there are no monthly payments due. So it just gets, you know, any interest that's accruing, it just gets added to your line of credit balance. So technically you wouldn't even have to pay this monthly note until, you know, whatever time that you chose to. I think the way that I would use it is probably not to buy just like a traditional rental property, but if I were to do it, I would use that as cash to buy a distressed property that needed to be rehabbed. I would go through the rehab process and then refinance out to get that capital back, pay off the line of credit, and then just recycle the capital that way. What happens if you don't get all of the capital back out? Uh, and you got to come out of pocket a little bit right, to, to pay off that line of credit. But I mean, that, that's just part of being a good real estate investor is doing your best to buy right. Even if you leave a couple thousand bucks in a real estate deal, the, the returns are still pretty solid. And you could use the monthly cash flow still at that point. If you got most of it back and you just had a little bit left over, you could use the monthly cash flow to pay off that remaining balance if you wanted. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, 
sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I'm not really the type of person in the real estate world to care much about unit counts and how many units people own. I think that that's often a vanity metric for a lot of people. But give us an idea of what your portfolio looks like today. Where are your properties located? What types of properties are they? What strategies are you using? Yeah, gosh, you know, I got to do some thinking here. So again, we got our first property in October of 2019, right? So we're coming up on two years now. We purchased four properties as long-term rentals in Louisiana. We've sold all but one of those. We have one of those four that's left. It's on the market right now. We're trying to sell it. And then we've got short-term rentals. That's what we transitioned into last year. And that's when our portfolio has just kind of grown quite a bit over the past 12 months. But we invest primarily in Joshua Tree, California, and in the Smoky Mountain area of Tennessee, so Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg area. In Joshua Tree right now, we have six active listings in Joshua Tree. We actually just sold one a couple of weeks ago. We've got another two that are currently in the rehab phase and uh, another four that are under contract. And then the Smoky Mountains, we've got two active listings out there, two active properties out there, and then another five under contract out there as well. How did you pick those areas? It was kind of happenstance. So one of my my friends in the world of real estate investing, he and I were initially kind of partnering up to do this whole apartment syndication thing, like I mentioned earlier in the show. And as we were trying to kind of gain some traction in the world of real estate investing or, or apartment syndication, we realized that it was very difficult to kind of break into that space as someone that had as little experience as we did. And my friend, he said, Hey, you know what? I'm kind of throwing the white towel. I'm not going to try and be an apartment syndicator, but I'm going to Tennessee and I'm buying this cabin and I'm going to rent it out on Airbnb. And you know, I was like, what? You know, what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Well, obviously, I used Airbnb before, and you know, I knew that there were some benefits to doing it. But he, my friend, flew out to Tennessee, and he spent some time out there, and he just kind of fell in love with the place. And when he came back from his trip, he let us know that he was buying one, and we just kind of blindly followed him into that market. You know, we did a little bit of our own due diligence, but after we kind of saw the potential returns in that market, we bought our first one last August, sight unseen. 
And like I said, we, we've kind of been off to the races ever since. And after seeing the success that we had in the Smoky Mountains, which is a national park, that kind of drew our attention to Joshua Tree, right? We live in Southern California. Joshua Tree is like a 90-minute drive from us, another national park, you know, big visitation, millions and millions of people every single year. And we saw some similarities uh, between those two markets. And, and that's how we got into Joshua Tree as well. How does financing work with these short-term rentals? Is it the same as like a traditional long-term investment property, 20, 25% down? What are you doing for financing on these? Man, that is the beauty of short-term rentals. I mean, why I think for most new investors, it's probably one of the best asset classes you can purchase in right now. So if you're a traditional real estate investor, you're buying a house, you buy it with the intention of getting a long-term lease in place, right? So I'm staying there for six, 12, 18 months, you're limited in the type of financing that you have available to you, right? It has to be labeled as an investment property because that long-term lease is there. With a vacation rental, with a short-term rental Airbnb Verbo type property, you can purchase these as vacation homes for yourself, right? You can purchase these as vacation homes for yourself because there's no long-term lease in place. It means you as the owner still have the option, so have the availability to visit and use that property for personal use throughout the year. So we've purchased the vast majority of our short-term rentals using a vacation home or second home mortgage. And the benefit of doing this is that it's typically only a 10% down payment. 10% down payment. So we're getting this property that's... I'll give you actual numbers, Robert, right? Because I was actually just looking at this yesterday. The very first cabin that we bought last year it was a $590,000 purchase price. So we got it with a $59,000 down payment. Our total cash to close, like after closing costs, we had some credits that came back to us. Like our total out of pocket expense to buy that property was $59,000. And it was an almost $600,000 purchase price. We netted, not gross, but we netted actual profit on that property over the first 12 months was $65,000. So our first 12 months of ownership, we grossed about 140K. We netted $65,000 on that. Like after all expenses, after mortgage, principal, taxes, insurance, repairs, and maintenance, we netted at 65K. So we're taking this $59,000 all in cash investment, and we were able to get more than that back in the first 12 months of owning it. And the reason why that works is because of that 10% down payment. So that's the financing that we use because it's fantastic. Is there a limit to how many of those you can get? Can you only have one? Because I've heard of this, but I thought that there, you could only do one at, at a time. You can only have one in each market. So I have one in Joshua Tree. I have one in the Smoky Mountains. My partner has one in Joshua Tree. He has one in the Smoky Mountains. So that's the way that you kind of get around it. So what you'll see a lot, Robert, is that people kind of jump from market to market, right? So like, say it's a husband and wife duo, they'll each buy one in market one, then they'll each buy one in market two, and they just kind of jump around leveraging that for as long as they can. Now, you still have to be able to get qualified for those mortgages, right? They're still looking at your debt to income ratio to make sure that you can carry all those mortgages. So there is a bit of a limitation there, but man, it is a great way to break into the short term rental space. Do they require W 2 income for those? They don't require W 2 income, right? I mean, you just got to be able to prove how much you make and then again, just meet those DTI requirements. So is the financing piece in terms of like actually getting approved, like the underwriting, is it similar to a traditional investment? Same exact thing. Because there's a lot of people that say one of the big benefits of W2 is that it's super easy to get loans for the most part. Once you become mm -hmm. a self-employed or an entrepreneur, it's a much harder. Are those still going to be issues for people if they're not W2 when it comes to getting these loans? The underwriting process is the exact same thing as it would be as, as buying a primary residence. So if you have an easy path to getting that mortgage for your primary residence, 
it'll be a very easy path for your short-term rental. If you have a more difficult or kind of complicated path for your primary residence, you'll kind of meet some of those same challenges um, with the, the vacation home mortgage as well. Now, I will add though that there are more companies, uh, Robert, that are popping up that are kind of specializing in funding short-term rentals. What you see a lot in like the apartment syndication space, right? The hotel space is that there's a very mature infrastructure for financing these things, right? Like there's you can get, you know, Fannie and Freddie debt, you know, non-recourse, like very attractive debt. That's still kind of being built out in the short-term rental space. But anyway, what you're seeing is that there are companies that are popping up that are underwriting these properties based on their projected short-term rental income. So they're not underwriting you as the borrower, right? Like as long as you meet their credit score requirements, they're going to look at, okay, how much does this property project to, to gross? What's the debt service coverage ratio on this property? And as long as it meets those guidelines, then you'll be able to get approved. But those are typically you know, 20% down, possibly more depending on the property. Who are you getting the loans from? I'm, I'm assuming it's not your typical Bank of America, TD Bank, these types of normal big institutions. I'm guessing it's probably a different type of bank. People think that, but our very first purchase was with US Bank, big national bank, and they offer this product as well. I think it's just not spoken of all that often. So people don't even know that it exists. And unless you go and ask for it, they might not even present it to you. But our first one was with a US Bank. We've used like a variety of lenders since then. What are the terms? I know you could do 10% down, you mentioned, but what is the length of the term? Are you able to get 30 year fixed debt? 30 year fixed. Interest rates are almost in lockstep with primary residence rates. Probably our best interest rate right now, we've got a 30 year fix in one of our Josh Tree properties at 2.675% interest rate. Yeah, financing doesn't get much better than that. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How does it work with investors? I know you've brought in some investor money for some of these Airbnbs. So, how do you manage the financing aspect when it comes to investors? Because I know sometimes these bigger banks don't like to lend people if they have investors and it can just make it really difficult. So how are you handling that piece of it? So what we do is we bring in partners and they carry the mortgage and we typically identify, find the property, and then we manage it on a day-to-day basis. And then we just split the profits. So it's very cut and simple and dry. Partner does the financing piece. We do the operational piece and we split everything down the middle. You brought up a next question, which is managing them. Are you self-managing all of these long-distance Airbnb properties? And if so, walk us through how you're doing that. Yeah, we are self-managing. And uh, so like my company, my team, it's Alpha Geek Capital. And that's me, my wife, and my wife's cousin. So the three of us kind of make up the, the tripod that is Alpha Geek Capital. And we each kind of play different roles within the business. So my wife's cousin, he focuses on like all the vendor relations. So he's the one that's like coordinating with the cleaners, paying all the contractors, like doing all that thing, all of those things, ordering all the supplies, like all of the back of house operations is what he runs. My wife is in charge of all the front of house. So she's like our guest relations person. So she's the one that's typically communicating with the guest, doing all those things. And she has some interaction with the cleaners and things like that as well. And then I do all of the acquisitions, the finance, the systems and operations, right? Like running our, our pricing strategy, all the software and tools that we use, getting all those things put together. So between the three of us, we've kind of found a, a good rhythm to, to keep the business balanced and moving forward. A hypothetical example here. What happens if somebody's at one of your properties and gets locked out, the keys are gone or something like that, something that you kind of almost have to be there to solve? What do you do in those cases? We've automated a lot of the business, right? So like, there's no keys. We have no physical keys to any of our properties. There's keypads. But uh, you know, just to get at what you're asking, if there's ever a situation that would absolutely positively require someone to be there, 
we'll typically call our cleaner or our handyman and, and they'll swing by. But there's never been like an absolute emergency where someone had to go. Like if there was a real emergency, we, we would just call like the police and say, hey, like get over there. But most of the guests' needs are urgent, but not so urgent that they need to be handled immediately in real time. I think your point that you made though about the keyless entry is important. I think that's the answer, right? That is one of the big answers is you've already thought about these things and you've already taken steps and put things in place. So you don't have to worry about that. You're like, okay, I can't deal with keys and I don't want to deal with keys and people are going to lock them. They're going to lose them. They're not going to find them, whatever the case is. Let's just put keyless entry, electronic keypads, I'm assuming into the doors and then that'll solve that issue. And so that's one of the great answers there is you've thought of all these different things that could go wrong with the property and you've got ahead of them. To me, automation is a critical piece of being able to continue to scale, right? Like we're at, you know, a small handful of properties right now, but my goal is to get to hundreds, if not thousands, of these units, right? So we've got to figure out what are the processes and systems we need to put in place now so that as we start to scale, all these things scale with us. And we're still finding different ways to try and continue to automate the business and make it more hands-off. But yeah, we're solely kind of putting those pieces into place. I want to talk a bit more about the partners and investors you have. You said that the investors get the financing and you guys kind of handle the rest. So are they putting up all the capital for... I mean, they're your investors, right? So I'm assuming they're putting up all of the capital, the majority of the capital. So is this right? Are they going out, getting the loan, getting the mortgage, putting up the capital, going through that whole process, and then you're doing everything else for them? And for that, you split 50-50. Is that pretty much how it works? That's absolutely correct. So we do pretty much all of the legwork. We involve them to the extent that they want to be involved, but the vast majority, you know, once we close on the property, they're just kind of hanging out in the background, you know, kind of collecting their profit distributions, but yeah, they bring the capital, they bring the mortgage approval, we find the deals, we get them set up, we run them on a day-to-day basis and we split it all down the middle. So why is that enticing to them? Just because they could be completely passive and they don't have to do anything because I mean in theory they could do what you're doing, right? And so why what is enticing to them? Just because they're completely passive, they don't have to worry about anything. Yeah, I think a lot of people are intrigued by the idea of owning a short-term rental. They see the benefits, they see the increased cash flow, but they are in no way, shape, or form do they have the desire to manage that kind of asset. So I think the way that we provide value to them is by giving them better returns than what they would get if they were to go buy some single-family residence, put a property manager in there, but still make it as passive as they want it to be. So we hope that we're, we're giving them value in that way. And then there are some people that we work with that you know, have hopes of doing this by themselves one day, you know, and they're working with us just to kind of learn the ropes. And we're okay with that too. Right? Like If you're here to use us as a stepping stone to build your portfolio without us, we're fine with that too. So why wouldn't they look at you as just like a property management company? Why wouldn't they just say, hey, instead of giving you 50% of this deal, why wouldn't I just give you 10, 12, 15%, whatever it looks like for Airbnb as my property manager? So yeah, great question. I'm glad you're asking that. And this is not a knock on property management companies, right? But A, in the short-term rental space, there's no way that you're paying 10% for property management. Like Those fees are closer to like 30 or 40%. When we bought our first cabin, there was a contract in place with a property management company that we had to honor for, like, I think, like the first month. And their fees were, were about 40%. In addition, what we've seen, at least in the markets that we operate in, is that the property management companies underperform. The same cabin that we did 140 some odd thousand dollars of gross revenue in our first 12 months did $86,000 in the 12 months prior, right? Like not including COVID, right? We bought it in 2020, but if you look to just 2019, it did $86,000, right? So that, that's almost 
half of what we did as brand new first-time short-term rental operators. So I think there's a value in having someone that has a vested interest in the property. In addition, we help them find the deal. We help them analyze the deal to make sure that it actually makes sense. right? So a property management company isn't going to source the deal for you. They're not going to tell you, yes, this is a good investment or, or, or no, it's not. And then last, if there's ever a situation where the expenses on a property exceed the income, right? So say that for whatever reason, we're not doing a good job or something breaks, there's a big bill that comes through. We split that cost evenly with our partners as well. So we have a vested interest in making sure that the property's doing a good job. And so you mentioned 50-50. How do you handle that from a legal perspective? If they're getting the loan, a lot of times what I've seen is that the financing company, the bank, typically wants that deed to only be in that person's name. So how do you handle that piece? Do you guys quick claim it after the mortgage is done? How do you handle that piece of it? Yeah, essentially. And this honestly varies by state. We've noticed that in Tennessee, you can actually close with two people on the deed, even if only one of them is on the mortgage. But in California, we have the just the person that's on the mortgage, so our partner. They're the only ones listed on the deed at the time of closing. And then after we close, it's close to a quick claim deed, but it's, it's called a grant deed. We go back, we update the title to make sure that everybody's on there with the correct percentages. And then how do you handle the taxes? And this is a little bit of a selfish question for me, to be honest, because it's something I've struggled with. You have a podcast, I have a podcast, we have audiences, social media, things like that. I've had people that want to invest with me. I've talked to my CPA and I just haven't found a way... I need to use a different strategy ultimately is what it boils down to because the strategy I'm using now, it doesn't make sense to partner with somebody to cover the tax cost. And so... I'm trying to learn how to fix that. And so I want to learn from you that. And I think it's selfish in that respect, but I think it's also helpful for people listening because somebody listening might want to partner with somebody they know or a couple of people they know because they don't have enough money. And I know that they're going to run into this tax issue. And so they might not realize it now, but in the future, you probably will realize that if you partner with somebody, you might have this tax issue here. And so what I'm referring to is with... I do long-distance single-family rentals long-term, and they'll make roughly say $300 a month in profit. So we'll net around $4,000 a year on one property. It's going to cost me between $1,000 and $1,500 for what they call a partnership tax return. And so if you take out $1,000 from a $4,000 profit, you've just cut 25% of your profits right there. And so for me, that doesn't make a lot of sense to bring in a partner to do that. So I'm curious to hear, how are you handling the tax piece in a similar situation? Yeah. So maybe I'll have to consult with my CPA about this, make sure I'm not giving out the wrong advice. but. So basically, the way that we've structured is that based on the equity ownership that we have in the property, that's the percentage of the tax benefits we get from that property, right? So say that on paper, there's a $10,000 loss on paper, right? My team would get $5,000 of that loss. Our partner would get $5,000 of that loss. And all we do, or all that we will do, is give our partners, like I don't know what the document is called, but we'll give them some kind of document at the end of the year that says, this is how much money we distributed it to you as profit, as owner distributions and profit for the entire year. And it's up to them at that point to take that information with their CPA and work out you know, whatever they need to work out. So pretty straightforward, man. I don't, I don't know if there's any secret sauce or maybe I'm missing something. Maybe my CPA will have a surprise for me at the end of the year, but that's the process right now. Yeah. That form is the K1. And I think what you're doing, that's the same process that my CPA told me. That's exactly what I go through. But I think the issue for me is that these properties are so small, they don't profit a ton. $4,000 a year in profit's not a ton. You're talking about $65,000 a year in profit. So if you do have a $1,500 tax bill to file your partnership tax return, which you would have with this investor, 
it's not really a big deal, right? What's $1,500 on $65,000 in profit? But for me, for a property that only makes $4,000, $1,000 to $1,500 for a tax bill, it just for my CPA to prepare the taxes for partnership return is a ton of money in terms of like the percentage of the profits. So I think that's the big disconnect is yours are so much more profitable because you're doing the short-term rentals. And so that's what I mentioned. I think I need to just do a different strategy with partners. And if I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, I can't have partners. And if I'm going to have partners, I need to do a different strategy. I'm glad you brought that up because we're honestly struggling with that same thing in our business right now as well. Right? Like the $65,000, like that's our biggest property. That's a cabin. It was the first one that we bought us you and well. But our Joshua Tree properties are probably going to do like half of that, right? In gross profit. So you're looking like the 30 to 35. Then we got to split that 50-50 with the partners, right? So it it gets sliced up a lot of times. And we're we're going through that same thought process now is like, does it make sense for us to continue to scale if we're doing it for 50% of $30,000, right? So we're looking at like $15,000 a year. So we're looking at other ways to still leverage the short-term rental platforms, but do it in a way that produces bigger revenues. Like we're, you know, we just put in an offer on like a nine-unit hotel here in Southern California that kind of fits our model. I was just in Big Bear Lake, which is another market here, and we were looking at like a, a five-unit apartment complex. So we're looking at different things to kind of solve that same problem that you're talking about, too, Robert. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. 
As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. What are you doing, if anything, to prepare for a potential recession? And I'm not saying one's coming, but with long-term rentals, traditional rentals, I think they're a little bit more recession-proof, which is one of the things I like about them. I think Airbnb can be a little bit more... I think it could struggle more with a recession. And so if a recession hits, you're almost exclusively in short-term rentals. What do you do? And what are you doing to prepare for that, if anything? Yeah. And this is a good question that that comes up a lot. Uh, I guess I'll I'll answer that in, in kind of two pieces, right? Because another way that that question is posed to me, Robert, is what happens if like home prices decrease, right? Because there's a lot of talk about that, right? Like not so much a big recession, but that you'll start to see a drop in home values because of what, whatever reasons, right? For us, the value of the home in the short term isn't super important. Like we plan to hold these things for a while. So the value of the property in the short term isn't super important because as long as there's still travel and leisure happening across the economy, then people are still coming to our property, right? Like even if the value of this home fluctuates like this, as long as travel is still doing this or even just staying flat, then we're still making money, right? So the home value in that piece, I'm not super concerned about. If there is like an actual recession, like like 2008 type recession, then yeah, I think we will be a bit exposed, right? Because it's if we're talking that level of economic chaos, then people probably aren't traveling to the Smoky Mountains to spend seven weeks and pay several thousand dollars for a cabin anymore, right? So we've got to lean on our reserves. Got to hope we've got enough money stocked away to kind of weather that storm. We got to hope that there's enough kind of at least travel happening to cover the the bare minimum to keep the doors open. And uh, if worse comes to worse, and we've got to come out of pocket to fund some of these deals, we'll do that until we run out of money, and then we'll pivot. We'll see if we can run them as long term rentals, which in these markets we probably can't because they're primarily vacation rentals. So yeah, man. I mean, I don't have a great answer because we let me put it this way, right? When Hilton or Marriott or Hyatt or all of these other hotels, when they're looking at a piece of land and they say, we want to build a hotel here, the CEO of those big companies isn't asking his team, hey guys, did anyone check to make sure if these will work as an apartment complex before we build it? Like That's not their model. right? Their model is we are first and foremost a vacation and tourism company. We're first and foremost a hospitality business that's focused on giving short-term stays to people who travel. And that's the same approach that I take in my business as well. We know that there will be fluctuations in the market. Um, We know that there will be ups and downs in how people travel, but our goal is that we've got enough cash stashed aside to weather those storms and that in the long run, we remain a profitable business. I was thinking more along the lines of the travel, like you said. I'm not really too concerned with the property values for the exact same reasons you said. They're going to go up, they're going to go down. Whatever that happens, that's fine as long as you continue to hold the property. I'm more thinking, what if travel goes down? People just can't afford to travel, right? Recession hits, people lose their jobs, they can't afford to travel, especially on a luxury like that. Typically, what do you do in that case? And so I'd love to learn a little bit more about your reserves. What do the reserves look like? Are you putting money aside every month? Do you have a certain percentage? Are you putting three times the mortgage payment aside for every property? Like, what are you doing for reserve strategy? Yeah, our, our target right now is three months of principal interest and taxes payments for each property. But luckily, my partner and I, we both have just like personal reserves as well. So as we're slowly building up business reserves, we know if there is like a kind of break the glass in case of emergency. We can dip into our personal finances to kind of keep the business whole and until we can get back to where we need to be. 
How do you align with your partners in terms of how long you're going to hold the property? What happens if one of your investors that finance the property decides, I want to sell, I don't want this anymore? What do you, what do, you do in those cases? We give control to our partners um, in terms of when to sell the property, right? They're the ones that brought the capital, they're the ones that are carrying the mortgage. So we, we give them the control. What we do have though in our joint venture contract is that if they sell before, I think it's five years, um, we get a 10% kicker on our equity stake. So if it's a 50-50 split, we then get 60% and they get 40% just to kind of incentivize them to hold it for at least that long. So yeah, that's how we structure our deals and kind of protect ourselves to make sure we're not putting all this work in up front. And then you know, six months later, the partner says, hey, I want to sell the property. A lot of times on podcasts, people just talk about their wins and don't talk about struggles or losses. So I want to chat a bit about what you're struggling with in your business. What are you struggling with and how are you working through those challenges? Yeah, man. I've got a couple. The first one is the last long-term rental that we have in Louisiana. It has turned out to be a terrible investment for us. It started off great. We put zero money into the deal. We're using that same bank that funded all the rehab and the, and the purchase price. But we bought it in a flood zone. And we knew it was a flood zone, but we factored in the cost of the flood insurance and it was still a profitable deal for us, right? especially given that we didn't put any money into it. What we didn't anticipate or, or I guess account for is that flood premiums can change from year to year. So our, our flood premium like literally doubled from one year to the next for whatever reason. And we shopped around to multiple insurance brokers and everyone was saying like, like it is what it is. So instead of us netting, I think we we're net, netting like, I don't know, 200 bucks a month on that property. We were actively losing $50 per month on the mortgage, right? Like it was, the mortgage was like 1400. It was rented out for 1350. And then we had a hundred dollar property management fee on top of that, right? So we're in the negative of like 150 bucks. Um, anyway, tenants ended up trashing the place. We had just renovated it right before they moved in. They kind of trashed the place. So we're, it's been vacant now for, Three months, and we're in the process of doing some minor rehab to try and get it like ready to sell. Um, we're going through it, and the reason why I bring that up, that went up first, Robert, is because a lot of people are afraid of a deal going sour. But I think that the lessons that I learned on that property far outweigh the small financial loss that I've accumulated on it. That deal was the first deal that I did with my partner, my wife's cousin, who's now been my partner on all of our other deals. So had we not done that deal together, we wouldn't alpha geek capital our business would not exist. It gave me another property as as track record that we could buy and renovate from a long distance and place a tenant, right? And make a profit. It it gave me so many other things that I feel are, are far more valuable than the loss. So that's one challenge for me, but something I just want to share with the audience because I feel like sometimes people don't talk about the deals that go bad. But there's I think a silver lining to those ones as well. The next challenge that I'm facing is just scaling the business. We're, we're still trying to figure out what that growth plan looks like for us. Do we continue to kind of partner on these one-off deals or do we just kind of exclusively focus on building out these bigger short-term rental developments and having these you know, 10, 15, 20 unit type short-term rental complexes and compounds? So, I mean, it's a good problem to have, right? There's a lot of interest to work with this. Um, we're just trying to figure out what the best way is to, to leverage that and, and give good returns to everybody. It was a relatively small detail that you mentioned on that property that went bad. But you did mention that you have about $100 a month in a property management fee. And I was kind of surprised to hear that because you just told us how you're managing, self-managing your Airbnb property. So I said, well, why is he using a property manager for a long-distance traditional rental? I yeah. personally manage my own rentals long distance from 2,000 miles away. And the, the traditional stuff's pretty easy. And if you're doing Airbnb, I'm like, he's definitely going to be able to do the long-distance traditional. So why is that? 
Yeah. So when we bought that property, our first two long-term rentals, um, my wife was not involved in the business yet. It was just me and her cousin, which is my, my partner. And at the time, I was still a very busy W-2 employee. He still is a W-2 employee. We just didn't have the bandwidth at the time to do that. And my wife had no interest in managing this house in Shreveport, Louisiana that was thousands of miles away. So that, that's why we opted to do the, the property manager in that place. And when we bought the short-term rental for the first time, my wife was on board with being the person that would kind of manage it to, to begin with. Do you have a long-term contract with them for like the lease period or something like that? Is there a reason why you can't cancel with them? So there is no contract anymore. That property is vacant. So that tenant moved out about two months ago. So we're just kind of doing some rehab to, to get it ready to sell. Could you have ended the property manager beforehand if you had decided you wanted to? For a fee. Um, I don't recall what that fee was, but yeah, there's some kind of like early termination fee if you wanted to do. So they were locked in for a set period of time. Yeah. For the length of lease. Yeah. We've talked a bit about your struggles. On the flip side, what's going well in the business? What are you proud of? What are you succeeding at? And what are you happy about that you're doing? Man, that is a good question. There's a lot to be happy about, Robert. Like I said, I, I feel like not even just about my business, but just like about life. I feel super grateful and humble to kind of live the life that I'm living. Right? Like October 29th, 2019, I bought my first real estate investment. And now I'm a podcast host for like a top 25 real estate business podcast. Like it, it just like it still blows my mind to even say that out loud. Right. So I think I feel super grateful just to have the reach to share my story, to to share my journey. I get messages, and we talked about this yesterday, right? I get messages and on Instagram like all the time from people saying that, that I've inspired them to take action. And to me, that's probably the, the biggest thing that I'm, I'm proud of, is just to have a positive impact on the lives of, of other people and hopefully help change their financial trajectory. Specifically within our investing business, I think I'm pretty proud of how fast we've scaled. We've done quite a few transactions in the last 12 months. Like It was 12 months, like almost a day that we got our first short-term rental and like all the different deals we have going on now, like I don't think that's super common. So I'm super proud of the growth that we that we've had, and I'm super excited for what's to come. So yeah, man, just all around, just lots of things to be grateful for. Admittedly, your show has a couple different segments on it, and to admit, I was inspired by that. For a while, I didn't have any segments on the show. We just went through questions with the guest. We'd wrap up and that was it. But I've really enjoyed your podcast and other bigger pockets podcasts where you guys have different segments, and I decided to add a segment to my show. And it's called The Action Plan. And in this segment of the show, as we wrap up, I ask every guest three questions to create an action plan for listeners. And the reason I wanted to do this is because I think too many people listen to podcasts, read books, whatever the medium is. They consume too much and they don't actually take action. So my goal with this segment is to create a real action plan for people. When they're done this episode, they have three things that they can go do. So for the first one, what is a habit or principle that you follow in your life that has had a big impact on your success that not enough people do, but should? Man, this is a deep question. I guess one thing, and again, more of a principle than a habit, but I don't do anything unless I believe I can be world-class at it. Like, If I'm going to do this thing, I want to be one of the best people to do it. Like, Period. I did a fitness competition a couple of years ago, like an amateur fitness competition. Um, I'm actually just started training for another one right now. And my wife was like, babe, why don't you just go to the gym? Like, why don't you just get in shape on your own? I was like, no, that's not enough. Like, if I'm going to do this, it's like, I want to be in the best shape of my life. Like, I want to compete with other people and see who's the better you know, person doing this thing. Same thing for the short-term rental space. It's like, when I jumped into this, 
my goal wasn't, can I have one or two short-term rentals? Like on day one, it was like, okay, how do we get to a thousand? Right? Like, how do we become the biggest single owner of short-term rentals in North America? That's the thought process that I have. So it's kind of a curse sometimes as well, right? To have this like almost unrealistic expectation of what you're capable of. But I feel like it served me well. And, and I use that kind of guiding principle with a lot of things that I do. I can speak from experience. It's definitely a blessing and a curse. I feel like I do the same thing in all aspects of my life. So I totally know where you're coming from. So for everybody listening, the first part of your action plan, if you have a bunch of different projects you want to work on, pick the one that you think you could be world-class at. Really only work on things that you could be world-class at. So second one, what has been the most influential book in your life? And I like to distinguish between favorite and influential because just because your book is your favorite doesn't necessarily mean it was the most influential. So what book has had the most impact on you? There are so many, but the the book I'm going to say isn't even a business book. It's a relationship book and it's called The Five Love Languages. It's really about like intimate relationships, but the principles apply to like really any relationship that you have. And what it says is that everybody receives and gives love in one of five ways. Physical touch, gifts, quality time, acts of service, words of affirmation. And it was a game changer in my relationship with my wife. Like once we really kind of understood that framework, it helped us get along better. Not that we were getting along poorly, but it just kind of deepened that relationship. But I also understood that, like, man, this applies to like every relationship. Like Robert, like I'm sure, you know, as, as our relationship continues to deepen, like I'm gonna learn how you like to be appreciated, right? Maybe it's not love, but you like to be appreciated in a certain way. And if I can speak that language to you and you can speak my language back to me, it's immediately going to deepen that connection. And what I honestly, truly believe, man, is that real estate is really a relationship business. Like, like if you want to succeed, it's really in the, the quality of the relationships that you have and that you maintain. So for me, that book is pivotal both in the personal and, and the business side. So for everyone listening, your second step of this action plan is to go read that book. And the final thing is, what is one action that somebody can take, other than the first two we just mentioned, that can improve their life, career, or business? One action, I think, is just to try something. Just try something. I think so often people are so afraid of failing that they don't even try. And I heard this the other day on the Bigger Pockets, the real estate show. They interviewed Scott McGillivary. He's like a host from HGTV. He does the, uh, I don't know, he's got a couple of shows with them. But anyway, he was on the podcast and he said the statement, and it was probably the most like articulate way I've ever heard it described. What he said was that people that are successful, they hate failure, but they're not afraid of it. People who never find success, they are fearful of failure and allow it to prevent them from taking action. And that just resonated with me so much because who likes failing? Nobody likes failing. But I know that I'm not afraid of failure and I understand that it's a necessary step to achieve the success that I, that I want in life. So what I would recommend everybody that's listening right now, if you've been thinking about starting that business, if you've been thinking about investing in that stock, if you've been thinking about buying that piece of real estate, just try it. Just try it. The absolute worst thing that's going to happen that you will be in the exact same position that you're in right now. The absolute best thing that could happen is that you change your life for the rest of your life. You change your kid's life. You change your grandkid's life because you made that decision today to try that one thing. So that's my final tip, man. There you go, guys. That is the three pieces of your action plan for this episode. Work on things that you can be world-class at. Read the Five Love Languages book. 
and try something new. Tony, before we wrap up the show, I like to give the guest a chance to ask me a question. I like to turn the tables, let them ask me something. So what question do you have for me? What's next for you and your business, man? What's the next big thing on the horizon for you? So the next big thing is something that I've already been working on a little bit. And so I think it's a little bit of a cheat answer, but you know I've been working on RVs. And so it's new. And so that's why I think it's still next for me because I'm just starting. And so I think that's still the next piece of it. And so I guess more broadly, I would say short-term rentals because RVs, I would classify as a short-term rental because it is, but it's also... I want to focus on more short-term rentals, whether it's a house, an RV, whatever it is. And so I'm trying to get into the space that, that you're in a little bit more starting to do that with RVs, hoping to scale that. You know, We're heading into winter here in the Northeast. We're going to get snow, probably not going to rent it out a lot. So not looking to acquire any more right now. But come spring, I wouldn't be surprised if I bought another two, three, four more RVs. I'd like to get, like I said, more into the short-term rental space, buy an Airbnb real estate property. So I think that's what's next for me. I think I've done well in the long-term, long-distance rental space. I know how that works. If I want to buy more, I can and pretty easily. I think what I'll do is probably get more into the short-term space, take that cash flow, put it into long-term stuff. And I think that's what's next for me in my business. Beautiful, man. I love it, brother. You know, I'm here to be a resource for you, man, in, in any way that I can. I appreciate that. Tony, where... I know everybody's going to love this this episode, and I know a lot of people are going to want to connect with you. So Where's the best place to find you? Yeah. Instagram is my main social media platform. So you can follow me there at Tony J. Robinson. My wife and I have a YouTube channel where we kind of detail our journey as being short-term rental owners and operators. So you can find us on YouTube at The Real Estate Robinsons. And then uh, obviously, I'm the co-host of The Bigger Pockets Real Estate Rookie Podcast as well. I have personally relied on Tony's resources, Instagram, YouTube, etc. to learn a bit more about short-term rentals as I get into this space more, as I just mentioned. So I highly recommend you guys go check out everything Tony's working on. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Tony, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah. Awesome, brother. I uh, had a good time, man. Hopefully the listeners got some value from this. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.